From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Fligskum, Swedish for flight shame, guilt around air travel's carbon footprint. Some Coloradans feel it. We fly. Travel is one of our values, and we love exploring faraway places, but we really struggle with the environmental cost of air travel. Is staying on the ground the only way to fight the feeling? Then, 400 years ago, the first slaves were brought to our shores. In a special project, the New York Times says that's the real founding of this country. We'll speak with a journalist who's contributing. She grew up in Colorado. Later, are seismic shifts needed in architecture to keep buildings safe in earthquakes? And the Colorado Classic is back. The best bike racers aren't necessarily the strongest. They're often also the smartest. And this year, they're all women. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When you go on a trip, does it send you on a guilt trip? It certainly does for Elizabeth Holman of Denver, who recently shared this with us. My climate confession is we fly. Travel is one of our values, and we love exploring faraway places, but we really struggle with the environmental cost of air travel. We also heard this from Christy Green of Evergreen, who prefers to be on two wheels. I enjoy biking a lot. Biking is healthy, it's inexpensive, and it has a small carbon footprint. But my climate confession to you today is this. I like to put my bike on an airplane and fly across the United States or to other countries for biking vacations. Well, Joop von Dyke had similar misgivings about air travel, so much so that when he accepted a job as a climate scientist at CU Boulder, he decided against flying to Colorado. The thing is, he came from Holland, so this led to a nearly three-month odyssey. And Joop is here safe and sound. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Meanwhile, Dan Rutherford just returned from a Hawaiian vacation, and yes, he flew. (laughs) It's a decision he wrestles with personally and professionally as a program director with the International Council on Clean Transportation. Dan, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Nice to be with you. I understand the idea of limiting one's air travel or stopping it altogether is catching on, particularly in Europe. Uh, The Swedes have a word, apparently, fligskum, flying shame. Uh, Dan, is there any evidence that this idea is taking off, so to speak, in the United States? We're just starting to see, I I would say, the green shoots of the fligskum movement here in the United States. Uh, Compared to Northern Europe and the U.K., uh, the awareness about the climate impact of flying in the U.S. is relatively low. Uh, But we do know that aircraft are the most carbon-intensive means of getting around. Uh, They emitted about a billion tons of CO2 collectively in 2018, uh, and about a quarter of those emissions are from flights uh, within or to and from U.S. airports. So, uh, it is a it is an issue, and more and more travelers here in the U.S. are starting to think about it. Uh, and yet, aren't there advances in how aircraft are made that make them more efficient? Uh, there are. Um, you can you can compare the um, the gains in fuel efficiency on an annual basis to increases in demand over time. Uh, So typically, airlines get 1% to 2% more fuel efficient per year Mm -hmm. uh, because they buy new aircraft and they operate them more efficiently. Uh, In contrast, uh, the number of flights uh, globally tends to increase about 4% to 5% per year. 
So, yes, the airlines are getting more fuel efficient. They're uh, emitting less carbon per flight. Uh, but uh, that's being outstripped by the increases in the number of flights. It's the democratizing of air travel. So many more people are doing it and I guess are doing it more frequently that that outpaces any gains that are made in the efficiency of the aircraft themselves. I, I think that's largely correct. Um, but we do need to realize that um, not everyone flies. So if you uh, break down sort of American public into three groups, about half of Americans don't fly. Hmm. About a third of, of U.S. adults fly between one to five times per year, and they're responsible for about a third of the trips. And then the remaining, basically 12% of U.S. adults, they fly six times or more per year, and that group of frequent flyers is responsible for about two-thirds of all of the trips taken. So it's very skewed. You've got a, a small group of frequent flyers, myself included, for work reasons, that fly on average about 14 times per year, and they're driving basically two-thirds of the climate problem. I see. So a very small group has a very large carbon footprint. Uh, it occurs to me then that the changes in their patterns could make a big difference. Is that something that, say, corporate America is aware of? Uh, certainly the airlines are aware of this because frequent flyers are a very important consumer group for them. Huh. I, I mean, it links back to this broader question about flag scum and, and how, um, you know, how worried you should be about an individual trip. Um, you know, personally, I am required to fly quite a bit for work uh, because I attend um, UN meetings in London and Montreal to try and devise policies to reduce emissions from international travel. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a bit of a contradiction there. I need to fly in order to try and reduce uh, aviation emissions. Uh, but, but definitely, um, it, it, there's a skew here. Frequent flyers are, are, are responsible for most of the carbon emissions. Those people definitely should be thinking carefully about how they might reduce their uh, trips and reduce their carbon footprint. Okay, my reaction um, to what, what my reaction to what you're saying there is uh, that my I don't know I might fly three times a year. I'm trying to think that's probably the average. You you've sort of assuaged my guilt. I get to blame the other guy or gal who travels. You know, a lot. Is that the message? Uh, yes and no. Um, definitely, if you are flying 14 times a year, you should be thinking about taking less trips. Uh, if you're flying one to five times per year, um, I would encourage you to think about um, how to fly better. Uh, and there are some simple rules that you can follow to try and um, choose less emitting flights. And I like to put it this way, is try to fly like a nerd, N-E-R-D. So if you can fly on a new aircraft, uh, if you can fly on, uh, on in economy class, if you can fly on a regular aircraft, so neither too small or too large, and if you can fly direct, that combination, N-E-R-D, um, can somewhat reduce the, the climate impact of your flying. And as an example, uh, I did recently take a family vacation to Hawaii. Uh, I followed these, these four rules, and I compared the carbon emissions from my flight to uh, a, a worse flight, and it was roughly 20% less hmm. uh, on that particular route. Um, that's a, We've seen uh, a difference as large as almost double, depending upon how layovers work. So, yes, uh, 
if you do fly occasionally, um, there are some tricks you can use to uh, reduce your carbon footprint somewhat. Okay, NERD becomes an acronym. I'll tweet that out later today. Uh, We know that 16-year-old climate activist Greta Thunberg set sail last week on a 3,000-mile trip from England to New York to avoid flying. And that brings us to you, Yoop. Um, You were starting this new job at CU. Uh, You know, one would assume you were anxious to get here and get started, uh, but you did not avail yourself of the quickest, easiest way to get here. Why was not flying so important to you? I think... That has been growing for me personally over the last nine years. Uh, it's not something that happens one way, one day to the other. Um, I think I started doing climate research when I was about 22, and I started realizing uh, that the IPCC report is correct. Uh, this is the International Panel on Climate yeah. Change. Yeah. So let me. I mean, you can never say something is correct as a scientist, but at least the estimates and the uncertainty windows that they are predicting. I, I verified those and I realized, I thought to myself, how can I acquire this, keep keep acquiring this data and yet keep writing proposals and keep going to conferences and field work, uh, flying there, emitting a lot of CO2. It made me feel very hypocrite, right? Huh. So I slowly started to change my life, uh, one step at a time. So I think I started just taking night trains in Europe, uh, buses. Um, I did still fly though. And also for my uh, doctorate research for my graduate program in Switzerland, I flew a lot. I probably flew more than anyone listening to this broadcast right now. So Okay. And how did you get here in the end? Um, so in the end, I decided that I wanted to go without flying. So there was only one option, right? Take a boat. Um, there was either a freighter or a sailing boat. Um, and I started talking to people that I knew that had done it before. I am from a country, the Netherlands, where people sail a lot. So I had some contacts. And then I found a website, I found a captain, and I moved to Spain and jumped on a boat. And then it was a nine-week journey across the Atlantic. Nine weeks on the the boat? The boat. Oh, my goodness. And what kind of boat was it? It was a catamaran. Uh, The nice thing about catamarans is that they do not... So you have a monohull and you have a catamaran, right? Those are the two main kinds of sailing boats. The one Greta is on right now is a monohull. I feel sorry for her because it's really tough to be on a monohull because you're always under an angle. Um, the you're nice always thing, tipped to the side. Yes, you're yes. A catamaran is always flat. So the nice thing is, when the Atlantic, the winds come from your back, so you're always sort of moving one way without any uh, waves. But that doesn't mean it was an easy journey. It was definitely not an easy journey because um, you spend most of your days uh, just doing nothing. Uh, there's not, there's no distractions around you, and that throws you back to who you are, which is difficult. I can imagine some people thinking, well, okay, admirable if you care about climate change, and yet also elitist, uh, that, that, that this might have been incredibly expensive. It certainly was time-consuming, and that very few people uh, would have the wherewithal to do what you did. What do you say? It's true. Um, but somebody asked me the other question the other day. You know, it's, I would say it's maybe privileged what I did, because it's definitely more expensive. But does that mean that all these millions of people that jump on that plane every day are privileged to do that as well? You know, it's, it goes uh, both ways. That has its own privileges. Exactly. I want to say that your boat eventually reached Florida. You took a bus to New Orleans, bought a bike there, and uh, cycled from there to Boulder. We're speaking with Joop van Dyke. He's a climate scientist at CU Boulder. When he accepted the job in Holland, he decided not to fly to Colorado, so he took a boat trip 
here. And Dan Rutherford is with us as well from the International Council on Clean Transportation. Dan, uh, I want to ask you about sort of offsetting your travel, contributing to projects that help reduce CO2 emissions. We heard about that from Colorado's Hunter Lovins. She is president of the Colorado Carbon Fund. If you want to fly, go ahead, fly, but offset your carbon. What do you think, Dan? Right. Uh, There's a lot of controversy about offsets, um, and I I won't bore you with the details, but um, my my take on offsetting and flying is that you should consider offsetting as a last resort uh, once you've determined that your flight is necessary, and then you've taken some simple steps to um, make sure that you're choosing a low-emitting flight. Um, offsetting is really about trying to um, take care of emissions from actions that you can't directly control. So if you fly, you're not flying the plane, you're not buying the plane, you're not purchasing the fuel. Um, so I think it's it's reasonable step. Um, there's a move now by airlines to offset rather than make investments in new aircraft or clean fuels. And I think that's fundamentally the wrong approach. The airlines themselves need to be making larger investments in technology. Uh, The idea that this could be greenwashing. I mean, it occurs to me that if airplanes were to run on alternative fuels, biofuels, for instance, or if there were a uh, viable solar commercial aircraft or one that ran on some other kind of alternative power, wouldn't that just nip this in the bud? Yeah. Uh, uh, there's a lot of interest in, in liquid alternative fuel these, fuels these days. Um, the airlines have been working on it for about 10 years, uh, and there's a strong case for it, because if you, if you can get a sustainable liquid jet fuel, you can continue to use the aircraft more or less you've, that you've already purchased, and you don't have any consumer downsides. Uh, you can still fly the same routes uh, that consumers are used to today. Unfortunately, the reality is that no one's been able to scale jet, alternative jet fuels yet. Hmm. So last year, uh, in total, the airlines used about 7 million liters of alternative jet fuels. Um, that's less than three one-thousandths of 1% of their overall use. Uh, so it's basically 16 minutes of annual jet fuel use. Um, so we're just not there yet in terms of scale. Okay. Uh, you. My question uh, for you is when you get an offer, let's say, to attend a conference um, in, I, I don't know, anywhere. It could be Los Angeles. It could be Tokyo. Or when your family says, we miss you, Yoop. Uh, or there's a family emergency. You are not nimble in the way that people want to be. Uh, and that air travel can make us. How, how have you adjusted your life uh, to fit this this style of life? I think communication is very important. I think my family and friends know that I have decided never to fly again. Uh, of course, it comes with certain complications. Uh, but when I was on the ocean, and when you're not distracted anymore by things going on in society, you you really start to realize what is important to you, what is important to me as a person. And I realized... To me, it is important that I leave this planet in the same or maybe even a better shape as it was before. And then the question comes up, is my family, am I more important than the greater collective? And I don't think so. I think more in terms of a species, 
I care more about the flourishing of the species, which cannot continue if we keep emitting CO2. I think that um, individuals struggle with what they can contribute or not contribute in terms of greenhouse gases, I suppose, versus what entire nations decide uh, in terms of policy. So you can make all the decisions you want in your life. And if new coal plants open somewhere, uh, that that's, you know, that's truly where climate change, um, that's what it hinges on. How how do you answer that for yourself, that much bigger forces are at play than any individual decision that you make as a traveler? I think that's a very good question. Um, I think it's both. So I'm really convinced that grassroots initiatives, like what I did and like what many other people do, is very important because at the end of the day, when you walk down the street, you will uh, compare yourself to what you see out there, right? You're doing what other people are doing. So if you decide that you want to make a change in your life and you have a certain philosophy, then you will display that to the rest of the world. You are a leader, right? I think it's very important to show to others what is normal. Now, if we go to the bigger picture, also there has to be a top-down approach, of course. Uh, And we were talking before about carbon offsetting. Um, There is this uh, bill that could be passed, which is the uh, Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. And I think... If you would pass this act, which is uh, forwarded by the um, Citizens Climate Lobby, you would get a system where carbon offsetting will become much more expensive. And uh, then you will facilitate also people to make this decision more easily. That is, you think that if there's real carbon pricing, that if people are met financially with the effects of their decisions, uh, they'll make different choices. You think that the market is a tool in this case, which is, you know, obviously not an uncontroversial idea in the United States, but that's what you're getting at. I, I do think so, yeah. Dan Rutherford, uh, you, you've hinted at this in the conversation. D- do the airlines care about this? Uh, certainly... I think the airlines are beginning to uh, recognize that climate change uh, is a threat to their current business model. And we're seeing this most clearly in Northern Europe with the Fliegskam movement, where uh, demand for air travel within Sweden, especially domestically, uh, has dropped quite significantly over the past year. Uh, so I think there's there's an awareness uh, now that, um, you know, unconstrained growth and business as usual investments in technology are not going going to cut it. Um, but yes, currently the, the, the international plan for dealing with climate is offsetting. It's not really making large new investments in clean aircraft or clean fuels. Um, and so that's, that's a tension we're going to see ratcheting up in the next couple of years is um, how much are the airlines themselves going to step up uh, and recognize that fundamental change is going to be needed to continue to, to grow. I mean, it strikes me that this is a slightly easier decision to make, that is not to fly in a place like Europe, where the distances in between cities are shorter and where there is quite the network uh, of trains, for instance, and that that becomes a very different equation in the United States. Would you just briefly address that before we go, Dan, just a few seconds? Uh, I, I think that's true. Um, the transportation system in the U.S. is very car and plane biased. Um, we're starting to see some regional efforts, like in California, to develop high-speed rail uh, and also in the, the, the Northeast. But, uh, yes, I would agree that um, 
countries like uh, European states and Japan, China, Korea, they've made small, smarter, long-term investments to yep. give other options to flying that are not available right now in the U.S. Dan Rutherford with the International Council on Clean Transportation, and we heard from you, Von Dyke. He's a climate scientist at CU Boulder. They joined us to discuss air travel in the age of climate change and flygskum, Swedish for flying shame. There were memories galore for one listener as she heard our story recently about the Auraria campus in Denver. Before it was home to three schools, it was a neighborhood, largely Hispanic. My grandmother grew up on the Auraria neighborhood and went to school and sung in the choir at St. Cajetan's later married my grandfather at that church. This is Jamie Torres of Denver. She's a member of city council and heard our story about the displaced Aurarian scholarship meant to help the families forced to move when the campus was created. Torres reached out on Twitter and shared a few thoughts for our feedback segment loud and clear. My mother was able to utilize that scholarship when she went to Community College of Denver for her associates in photography During that time, I was actually at the daycare that's on campus. And so every time I'm coming off of the Colfax Viaduct and I see the daycare, I'm reminded kind of of that time and also how much that campus now serves families and kids going to college at 18 and adults going back for further education. Torres will never forget the time she returned to her area with her grandmother, who's almost 80. She talked a lot about singing in the choir, and we went into St. Cajetan's one day. I mean, it's a meeting space now. So we went in and just kind of explored around. It was a bit of awe and just wanting to share a lot of stories with me. Um, She came from a really big family of uh, nine brothers and three sisters and was pulled out of school to take care of her mom and the rest of the siblings. And I think being in school was one of the really fond memories that she had. Memories of what Auraria used to be from listener and Denver City Councilwoman Jamie Torres. We always welcome your feedback. You can find all the ways to get in touch at cpr.org slash connect. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with medical myths that are tied to slavery. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. It's Colorado. It's 2019. Weed is legal. It's not that unusual to see cannabis yoga classes, guided cannabis meditations, even cannabis churches. Now, using cannabis to meditate or worship is not a new thing. Rastafarians have been using it for almost 100 years. But in this new world of legalization, what changes when we're talking about weed and religion? Find out on the latest episode of CPR's new podcast, On Something, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Slavery came to our shores 400 years ago this month, and it has shaped the United States ever since, including, it turns out, medical science. A new essay in The New York Times details how slaves were tortured in the name of medicine and how myths about black people's bodies persist. Linda Villarosa wrote the piece. She grew up in Lakewood. Her essay is part of a major series at the Times called The 1619 Project, which contends that the arrival of slaves 
marks this country's true founding. And Linda, thank you for being with us. Thank you. I'd like to start with a slave named John Brown. He lived on a Georgia plantation in the 1800s. A doctor used him to test what today seems like a very strange idea. What was the theory and how did the doctor test it? So um, John Brown was an enslaved man in Georgia in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s. And he was lent, so his body was lent to a a local physician in order to first test the idea that black uh, blacks had a superpower against heat, high, high heat tolerance. And so it was so this doctor could create a cure for sunstroke. So after he did created whatever cure, which was probably fake, um, he then kept John Brown and used him to prove the idea that black skin was thicker than white skin. And he burned through several layers of John Brown's skin until he was so debilitated that he couldn't work in the field. And what was really horrible was that he had still had to work in the fields even when he was undergoing these tests for both extreme heat and for the skin thickness. Um, The heroic thing about John Brown is that he escaped, went to England, and he was um, one of not very many slaves, enslaved people who was able to write his own story. So he wrote a book about his experiences. So it's even more poignant to read his book and to hear him describing what happened to him in his own words. And how excruciating that must have been. And horrible. Yeah. And this was all based on, I mean, you use the term superpower. That's an interesting choice of words. The idea that um, black people have extremely high pain tolerance and can tolerate pain that was, I mean, and described in medical journals and, you know, other history, history books that was unbelievable and that other people couldn't tolerate, non-black people could not tolerate You write about another medical fallacy, this one promoted by, of all people, Thomas Jefferson, uh, that blacks' lung capacity was smaller than whites. Uh, And and what conclusion did doctors draw from that theory? Like, how did it impact the whole issue of slavery? Because you make that connection. So um, when in 1787, when Thomas Jefferson made that contention, and he made a lot of other ones, I mean, you know, he, he was, the things he was saying about black-white physiological differences were not just the inferior lung capacity, but in other ways that were, um, it's strange to read it right now. So um, he said that black people had inferior lungs that could, and then Southern doctors picked up on that using Thomas Jefferson's words to say, oh, then that makes Um, forced labor really good for them because they strengthen their lungs, they get stronger, um, and freedom is bad for them because then their inferior lungs will stay weak. You write even that the desire to flee slavery was pathologized, like they essentially tried to create a disease with a name that described the yearning for freedom. Is that right? Yes. And so The doctor who probably took these myths the farthest was um, Samuel Cartwright. So Samuel Cartwright was a physician in New Orleans at what is now Tulane University. And so he presented his findings first at a medical conference, and then it was printed in a medical journal that was widely read. And he first talked about all kinds of black-white differences, including the inferior lungs, then he went on to say, oh, there's this disease called drapetomania, and it's the idea that um, 
enslaved people are afflicted with drapedomania, which is not a real thing, and then they get they try to flee because that's what they're overcome with the you know desire for freedom, and then to cure it, I'm using quotes, um, you work them harder or beat them harder. Is it your sense, having researched this, that at the time medical professionals actually believed this, or they were very consciously trying to maintain the institution of slavery? I think both, because some physicians and scientists in the North were laughing at this. You know, they were saying, this is crazy. Um, But in the South, there were many doctors who believed this, who were doing their own kinds of experimentation. And because it was legitimized at universities, it was legitimized in medical journals, in medical conferences, that's why it was seized upon. But many of these doctors, um, including Thomas um, Hamilton, were enslavers. So they had a capitalistic interest in maintaining the institution of slavery. Okay, these theories were circulated hundreds of years ago, but you argue that they still play into the medical treatment of African Americans. Uh, can we have an example of that? So the, the one about um, high pain tolerance, in 2016, there was a study that um, I've seen printed you know, it got a lot of media attention. And it was from the University of Virginia, and it was, you know, presented in the National Academy of Medicine's proceedings. So that's National Academy of Science. So it's, you know, it's a very legitimate place, and it's a good study, very interesting. And it was of um, medical students and medical residents, and asked them to imagine the pain of getting your hand slammed in a door or breaking your ankle. And it was to imagine black patients versus white patients. And most of the doctors believed at least one fallacy that um, of the ones listed that black people had a higher tolerance or lower sensitivity to pain in these specific examples than white patients. And the other thing that was really sad to me was that the majority of them also believed that black skin was thicker than white skin, which is the very myth that... Um, Thomas Hamilton tortured John Brown to prove. My goodness. And so these beliefs, however subtle or unsubtle, reverberate hundreds of years later. And and speaking of the reverberations of slavery, I want to get some perspective on this broader project, the 1619 Project from the New York Times. As I mentioned, it starts with a premise that this country wasn't founded in 1776, but at the beginning of slavery in 1619. Will you just briefly explain that idea to us? So this project comes from the mind of uh, MacArthur Genius Award winner Nicole Hannah-Brown, who is um, also a New York Times writer. And she is she has been thinking about this long and hard and decided, because the anniversary is this month, to say, why don't we, se- why don't we look at this and commemorate it and look at the consequences and of slavery, um, 250 years of slavery, um, another 100 years of government-sanctioned segregation, and um, look at what it has done to this country and how it is still infused in many of our current institutions and structures. So it was a really, you know, big, wide-ranging, uh, thoughtful piece, and I attended that first meeting, and I was like, I want in on this. I can write about, tell me what you want me to write about. Uh, public health and inequality and race is my beat, and so please, I want to be in on this because I realize this is a reimagining of the way we talk about slavery. And I started thinking about my own, you know, youth, and I learned about slavery 
you know, I grew up in Colorado. Mm-hmm. I was educated in the public school system, and I learned about slavery by watching Roots. And then, the, you know, I was shocked. I was like, oh, my God, how could this be? And then my, the next gen- generation, my own children, who were raised in Brooklyn, New York, learned about slavery through the lens of the Civil War. And so we went on a field trip to Gettysburg, and so it was very war-based about you know, hardly any mention. And I complained to the principal of their school in Brooklyn. I complained to her, their teacher. And the teacher said, well, we don't, we're not equipped to teach this. Can you teach it? And I thought, well, I can't teach it. I'm not a, you know, elementary school teacher. But I was surprised at the limited way slavery was talked about in my children's education and my own. Uh, Some conservatives are complaining about the project. Former House Speaker Newt Gingrich tweeted, The New York Times 1619 project should make its slogan all the propaganda we want to brainwash you with. Uh, He told Fox that slavery is terrible. Let's listen to to what he said. I think certainly if you're an African-American, slavery is at the center of what you see as the American experience. But for most Americans, most of the time, there were a lot of other things going on. We have about 30 seconds, Linda. Could you just respond to that for me? Well, calling it propaganda is insulting because I my piece was deeply reported. Nicole Hannah-Jones's piece was deeply reported. And most of us, all of us, had deeply reported. We're not, this isn't our opinion. This is a fact. And slavery, this is what this very piece proves, is that slavery... The experience is not just important to black people in this country. It's important to everybody and everything, and it was what this country was built on. So I, you know, he hasn't held office since 1999. His degree is in European history. So I don't think he's actually an expert in this. So I just push back to say, you know, pay attention to this because it really is an awakening about the very, our history and the way our country was built. I'm grateful for your time. Thanks, Linda. Thank you. Linda Villarosa is a New York Times contributor, and she is a part of the newspaper's 1619 Project. Villarosa grew up in Lakewood. Just because a building survives an earthquake doesn't mean it's safe to go back in, older buildings especially. Engineer Abby Lyle of CU Boulder is trying to solve this problem through retrofits, and she just got a big federal grant for this work. Abby, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. How is it that a building still standing might not be safe? Like, what are the specific concerns about going back in after a quake? Yeah, we we would be worried about things falling, about you know, an aftershock situation where the building might be have another earthquake and might be very close to collapsing. And then in, in the project that we're working on, we're also just worried about being able to use the building. So wanting to make sure that, um, you know, if you if your communications studio is in a building, that you can use it after an earthquake for some really important things that might need to happen um, or, you know, offices and things like that. So we're worried about functionality and safety and Um, There's just a big delay sometimes in doing those assessments and repairing after events. Yeah, usability, it strikes me, of a building could be very critical to the recovery from the quake if you're involved in some critical area of bouncing back from a quake or helping people. Yes, and we saw, you know, 
the recent experience of Christchurch, New Zealand, which is another place with great building codes, good understanding of seismic performance. You know, they had many, many buildings that were torn down and not usable for, you know, five, six, you know, years after the event, and they're still rebuilding. So there's a real long-term impact sometimes in terms of usability. I wonder if you look at a situation like that, you see that buildings can't be occupied for five or six years afterwards. I gather there's just a part of you that thinks, that's crazy, we should be able to solve this. Right, and that's really what we're trying to do. And this is part of a kind of a change in the discussion at the national and state and local government level saying, maybe what we've been doing isn't good enough. It's really important. Safety is super important, obviously the most important, but can we do better? Can we be designing buildings, uh, infrastructure, retrofits to buildings that would help us use it faster and how and thinking about how critical that is for our economies and um, community resilience and our way of life, to be frank. And so there you are in Boulder and you've gotten this $366,000 grant from the National Institutes of Standards and Technology. And uh, you are largely focused on that idea of retrofitting certain buildings to make them safe. Uh, after a yes. quake. Should we just assume, let me check an assumption, are older buildings always less resilient to earthquakes? Uh, generally. Yeah. And it depends, you know, engineers love to talk about details. There are certain ones that are worse than others, but in general, older is worse. We've made big improvements in what we understand about seismic design. Um, and so, you know, in 2019, we do definitely do better than we did um, 20, 30, 60 years ago. Okay. But to this question of retrofits and a, a building might have been up for 20 or 30 years or more. And the question is, can you strengthen it in advance of a quake? That's not a new idea by any means, Abby, but how much disruption is this ripe for? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, what we're really focusing on in the in the work that we're doing f under this NIST grant is that we're, we're trying to think about under what situations should we be doing even more retrofits? So in what situations should we be designing that retrofit for usability, for occupability after an earthquake? And recognizing that there's a lot of buildings that haven't been retrofit at all. Um, we don't generally require owners to go back and fix things up, mm -hmm. although that is changing a little bit. Um, and so thinking there's probably going to be a lot of retrofits going on in the coming years, and how can we help owners and engineers decide in which cases to really make it, you know, focus on this post-earthquake behavior and how to make that happen from an engineering perspective. Yeah, give us an example. Um, I'd love to imagine the ways in which engineering-wise you can reinforce a building and, you know, not go broke doing it. Right. Yeah. And retrofit is expensive. That's a big challenge. And especially for the concrete buildings that are my main interest. Huh. Um, you know, the kind of conventional ways would be putting jackets around columns and those could be more concrete. They could be steel. They could be adding walls. Um, what we're interested in here is like, does that really help in terms of being able to use the building soon after the earthquake? We know it helps safety. Um, and so it's super important, but can it also help in terms of uh, helping us use the building after the earthquake? Or if it doesn't, what are the other technologies that are out there that might um, facilitate that? What's the wackiest, most wonderful idea you've seen in terms of retrofits? 
Oh, there's all kinds of crazy ideas out there. I mean, I think the coolest one that's actually kind of used in practice is this base isolation technology where you put your building on rollers or, you know, like a frying pan, Teflon frying pan kind of look thing. And so the building is able to slide without really deforming and the energy is absorbed by this kind of rubber or um, sliding system rather than the building itself. Um, and it's just, it like, it's really satisfying because it looks like physics in action. You know, there's a spring at the bottom that represents how the building is moving and then it's protecting the structure above. Okay, I grew up in Southern California uh, with the constant threat of the big one lording over Mm -hmm. me as a kid. I mean, in school, we had earthquake drills as much as we had fire drills. And I remember learning about buildings uh, that were built on rollers. I I thought as a kid that was just about the coolest thing ever. Could that be done as a retrofit, though? It can be done as a retrofit. And, for example, there's some, you know, high-profile Old historic buildings, like I, I'm pretty sure San Francisco City Hall is on a system like that. Um, but it's pretty expensive, even relative to other retrofit techniques, because you have to jack up various parts of the building. And um, But it, it's a really neat technology, and um, it's something we could be doing more of in the U.S. So Los Angeles recently passed a measure to require some retrofitting. But it's on like a 25-year timeline, which seems like a long time, given the fears I mentioned of the big one, which have existed since before I I was born. Um, What's your take on L.A.'s decision? So, I mean, I studied older concrete buildings in my Ph.D., and I thought no municipality would ever adopt any legislation to require retrofit. So in some ways, I'm super optimistic because there's been this huge shift in the conversation and cities and the state is looking at what can we do. Um, the 25-year time frame, I think they're, you know, it's just, they were just trying to come up with a solution that made it feasible to get it passed. So recognizing the huge investment that's going to have to come from the state and building owners and um, and kind of valuing that in the development of the other parts of the legislation of the, of the time frame. So a move in the right direction, definitely. 25 years is a long time, but I think my sense is that they felt like they needed to give more time to help it really happen. Uh, we are basically out of time, but can I get a yes or no from you, Abby? If you do this for buildings, these kinds of retrofits, does it also make them uh, more robust in the face of other kinds of natural disasters, flooding, etc.? Uh, yes and no. And I think the way we're thinking um, about buildings after events is really applicable to other hazards. And we can take a lot of that thinking to other kinds of retrofits for other hazards. Abby Lyle, associate professor at CU Boulder and a civil and environmental engineer. She has gotten a federal grant to work on retrofitting buildings, not just to withstand an earthquake, but to make sure that they can be occupiable shortly thereafter. The Colorado Classic Cycling Race returns this week with a twist. It's now a women's event, touted as the only one of its kind in the Western Hemisphere. Four stages, starting in Steamboat Springs, on to Avon, Golden, and ending in Denver. Cyclist Erica Clevenger of Golden will compete in the 220-mile race. She juggles the sports and her studies at the Colorado School of Mines. And welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I want to start with a feeling. What top speeds would you reach in a race like this? And what does that feel like? 
I would say maybe 50 or 60 miles per hour would be the top speed that we'd reach, and that would be on a descent. So, for example, the second stage in Avon has a really fun 30-minute, pretty tough climb and a pretty tricky winding descent. So that's pretty fun because you can kind of rip around corners, and it's more fun than just going straight down. So it feels a little bit dangerous, but a little bit fun and fast. Well, this is an interesting point that downhill just sounds easier, but there is some skill involved in doing that well and safely, I gather. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, the best bike racers aren't necessarily the strongest. They're often also um, the craftiest and the smartest and very good bike handlers because you need to be able to move through the peloton, which is the group of cyclists, um, move through the peloton easily, quickly and without wasting too much energy. Right. Or hitting anyone. Or hitting anyone (laughs) or anything. (laughs) Are you ready? And, And how do you prepare for a race like this? I like to think I'm ready. Um, It's hard to know, but I've been training all season, essentially, and there's definitely some mental techniques and race visualization that goes into it. Tell me about that. What do you visualize? (laughs) I have a few people, I think, in the peloton that are similar riders to me, and I often, like, if I'm thinking about a sprint, I might think about a really good sprinter and pretend that she's next to me, or I often will actually think back to an actual race where maybe I didn't get the result I wanted, or maybe I did, and I just sort of visualize, like, what that felt like and um, changing the outcome. Yeah, exactly. How important is it that this is a women's race? It's incredibly important because a lot of times when races are struggling or they're choosing what to focus on, it's usually the men that they focus on. Women have about, I think, a third of the race opportunities that men have. So there's a lot of races out there that are only men And this is one of the very few that actually decided to focus on the women, which is an incredibly impactful thing that they decided to do. And um, it's really exciting to be a part of it. I understand that you've only been cycling for about three and a half years in competition and you're already pro? (laughs) Yes. Started in triathlon, actually. So I jumped in a regional level race called Valley of the Sun in Phoenix, Arizona. Just randomly? um, For training for triathlon. I mean, I was riding and it seemed like a good way to get in some miles and have some fun. And that was really the first time I saw um, sort of the pro teams that were out there. And I was like, wow, those girls are fast. Like, They are cool. I want to be like them. (laughs) (laughs) I also understand that you get inspiration from your grandmother. I do. Yes. My grandmother actually came to the U.S. from Mexico when she was, I think, 13 or 14. And she came with no more than a second grade education um, in Spanish, no less. And she came not knowing the language, not having any family over here. And she got a job as a seamstress. She saved enough money to buy a sewing machine. And from there, she started her own business, which is still around today. But um, yeah, she's truly an amazing woman. She taught herself to read and um, raised children here, mostly on her own. And she's just an incredible person and has this incredible work ethic. Does she show up to any of these races? She has wanted to, but traveling is actually pretty tough for her. Mm. Um, she's, she's not as young as she used to be, but she did so much with so little. So it behooves me to do the same. <laughs> You're a pro cyclist and in school for your Ph.D. in environmental engineering at the Colorado School of Mines. 
I mean, a PhD program is more than a full-time job. How the heck are you balancing cycling with it? Well, it definitely helps that I have an advisor who's sensitive to my hopes and dreams when it comes to being a cyclist. He and I go for mountain bike rides together. He's a cyclist himself. We say we have our meetings while we're on our bikes, but usually we're kind of just having a good time. (laughs) Okay, so it helps to have uh, the advisor's buy-in. Where do you want to wind up uh, with cycling? I would love to be selected to be a part of the Team USA going to a world championship one day. And um, aside from that, I'm just really looking forward to hopefully getting more women into cycling. I just I love the sport and I kind of want to share my passion for it. Yeah. What do you think is in the way of young women and girls getting into this sport? I think that there are a lot of factors, obviously, nothing's black and white, but one of them being just that there's not a lot of development opportunities for women. I think that that's changing for sure, but um, I also think that it's just a predominantly white male sport and it's actually a bit intimidating for women or minorities to get into, but that's something we as a sport are recognizing and working to change. Thanks for being with us, Erica. Break, can I say break a leg? Should I say break a leg? <laughs> you, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> Sounds especially bad for a cyclist. But, uh, <laughs> I hope you do well. Thank you. Pro cyclist Erica Clevenger is on the Show Air 2020 team. She'll compete in the Colorado Classic starting Thursday in Steamboat Springs. Just before she left the studio, I had one last question. How many bikes does she have? The correct number of bikes is N plus one, N being the number of bikes that you currently own. (laughs) Always having room for one more. Exactly. And for her, N equals four. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News. 